It's time for Fed Talk, the live show for Feds in the Know. From federal agencies to Capitol Hill, the attorneys of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth bring in experts from across the federal community to bring you inside the issues. Fed Talk is meant to provide general information about legal issues. However, the views expressed in this program are not intended to provide legal counseling. Listeners are cautioned not to rely upon any statements made in resolving legal issues they may face, but instead to consult with their own attorney about specific situations. Attorneys are not engaged in providing legal services while appearing on the program and are not responsible in any manner for the consequences that may stem directly or indirectly from reliance on any statement made during this program. Good morning and welcome to Fed Talk. I'm your host, Jason Breifel. This morning, I'm joined in the studio by Kelly Lunny, Senior Correspondent at Government Executive, and Carton Cordell, Senior Staff Writer at Federal Times. Uh, we'll be hosting this r- reporter roundtable discussing some of the uh, big issues pending on Capitol Hill at the moment, as well as looking forward to some of those deadlines towards the end of the year and looking forward at the end of our program uh, towards what some of the presidential candidates have in store for the federal workforce uh, and the government should they find themselves in the White House in 2017. Before we dive into our conversation, I'd like to remind our viewers that Fed Talk is brought to you by Long-Term Care Partners. Long-Term Care administers the Office of Personnel Management-sponsored federal long-term care insurance program. Uh, good morning, Kelly and Carton. Thank you so much for being here with me this morning. Good morning. Thank you. Morning. Um, well, well, why don't we just dive right in with uh, some of the big issues that are taking place up on uh, Capitol Hill uh, this week. Uh, we're we're not going to dive into the uh, whole uh, situation regarding who's going to be the Speaker of the House, although that's kind of frozen much congressional action for these past right. few weeks. Um, but but let's talk about the defense authorization. Yesterday, President Obama followed through on his pledge to uh, veto the NDAA. He had he had. Um, indicated he may do so in previous years over issues regarding Guantanamo Bay and other provisions. But this year, he actually followed through on it, uh, much to the chagrin of the uh, House and Senate Armed Services Committee's chairman, uh, John McCain in the Senate and Mac Thornberry in the House. Uh, What was in the NDAA uh, for the workforce and and the military? And and what does this mean? What's the potential path forward? Well, there are a lot of um, pay and benefits provisions in the NDAA, as there is every year. Um, And it's a big deal that the president vetoed it in the sense that this is typically a bill that is not too controversial. It goes through every year. Um, You know, it's typically very bipartisan. I think we've passed it for 53 years straight. I believe it's 53 years straight. Um, But as far as pay and benefits go, you know, there's the the annual military pay raise for uh, troops. It's a 1.3% pay raise for 2016. Um, And probably even more significantly than that, because even though the veto happened, troops will still get a pay raise at at some point. It's, you know, the the timing is is questionable because of the veto. But um, as far as things that could get really derailed, uh, there is a a lot of provisions in that bill that would affect military retirement, that would really overhaul it, change it. Um, This is something that lawmakers and the Defense Department have been trying to do for decades, um, to change the the retirement program, to try to get some more non-career military people um, some benefits, because right now you you don't get retirement benefits unless you stay in 20 years. Um, This would change that. This would give um, non-career people some uh, money to build a nest egg, essentially. It would change some of the TSP, um, the way the TSP works for service members now. So 
that's really at risk um, in this bill because it's it's something new. And if that sort of gets tabled, then they have to sort of start from square one to get that back in in the running. Great. Well, and uh, one of the things I found very interesting is the whole uh, bone in the White House's craw, if it were, uh, is a sort of a sidestep around sequestration cuts through the operations contingency accounts, which were set up to you know, fund part of the Iraq war and the Afghanistan war. And uh, what Republicans want to do is shift funds into those accounts so the military will be able to spend at levels that it had previously had before sequestration, uh, which is why the president wanted to issue the veto. He wants to lift all sequestration cuts across the board. So what uh, makes it very interesting to me, not to jump too many issues down the line, is that uh, you know on October 1st, we had a potential shutdown situation with Planned Parenthood now, which has been resolved seemingly and is no longer the issue that, you know, that they want to shut the government, Republicans want to shut the government down over. Uh, But now it could be very much this defense bill. So it seems like we've jumped from one issue to the other. And now we have yet another situation to hash out before December. You're right. You know, the, uh, the, the issue of sequestration has has been looming over this uh, this current defense authorization throughout the entire year uh, mm-hmm. that the president and congressional Democrats have have held firm that they would like to see some kind of deal uh, similar to the Murray Ryan deal from two years ago that provided agencies either sequester relief on a temporary basis or uh, a more fulsome relief in terms of repeal of the sequester and and getting back to, to budgeting and appropriating funds. Uh, specifically. Um, And we'll dive into that conversation in a little bit more depth uh, towards the end of the program when we talk about that that big deadline for the current CR that expires um, in uh, December. Uh, Another provision that I think is interesting in this NDAA is uh, a call to reduce DOD civilian uh, headquarters workforce by 25% over the next five years. I know that lawmakers have been somewhat critical of efforts by the Pentagon to uh, reduce headquarters staff um, to date. I know that Sec- uh, Senator McCain has uh, called out the Air Force, particularly um, saying that they mostly moved staff around instead of actually shed shed jobs. Um, is is this a, a provision that that appears like it will will, will stick in there going forward? And, and are there any other workforce uh, civilian workforce related provisions that are that are worth noting? Um, I think it'll probably stick around, um, and. It- Part of that provision calls for some of the savings that the Pentagon has already achieved. Um, you know, they've had their own plan to cut back on workforce, um, particularly with the drawdown um, overseas. So this has been something that's been going on. Congress is kind of trying to push them to actually get it done by by putting it into the bill. Um, and I think the timetable is um, till they have to achieve the savings by fiscal 2020. Um so I think, you know, it'll stick around if it gets derailed this time, which I doubt it will. But it, it'll it'll come back around because it's something that um, that lawmakers really want. And there is there are people in the Pentagon that recognize the need for it as well. Great. I uh, appreciate that. Well, why don't we take a, a pause in our conversation here Um uh, we'll, we'll clearly have to see what, what ends up happening going forward with the defense authorization, whether Congress may address the, the sequester issue. But after our break, we'll uh, pick up with another hot issue on Capitol Hill this week regarding the Department of, Veteran of Veterans Affairs. Uh, you're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. 
Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Today I'm joined by Kelly Lenny from Government Executive and Carton Cordell from Federal Times in a reporter roundtable discussing some of the big issues facing the workforce. Um, before the break, we were talking about the, the president's uh, veto of the defense authorization, um, but I'd like to dive into now a conversation about uh, uh, a topic that has been uh, really active in Congress and the committees that have been very active in Congress, uh, the Veterans Affairs Committees, uh, dealing with some of the workforce issues and, uh, and other issues at, at the department there. Uh, can, can either you give, just give us a, a sense of, of where we're at, what are some of the big issues? And uh, there was a, a hearing this week that, that we probably should talk about uh, looking into a, a relocation program at the Veterans Benefits Administration and potential abuse by executives at, at that organization regarding that program. Well, it seems like uh, Veterans Affairs, if they didn't have bad luck, they'd have no luck at all right now. Uh, this most recent issue... Re- uh, revolves around two executives that uh, were in senior executive levels and sought to get director's jobs in specific locations, I believe, to be closer to family. Um, They were paid relocation benefits and were able to keep their senior executive salaries, which is all in federal policy, that that's something that they can do. Where they uh, got into trouble or allegedly got into trouble is uh, they supposedly pressured to executives below them to transfer to other jobs so they can then fill those vacancies. And that's what has come out in an inspector's general report and is what is the result of these hearings that we're seeing right now. Uh, this week, there were hearings in the House to uh, examine this issue, but uh, the VA and the House have sort of gotten into a bit of a tug of war about whether there's actually the appropriate time for these executives to testify while the VA continues to examine the issue itself. Yeah, and I think, you know, this particular case involving these two senior executives really speaks to sort of the larger narrative that's happening in terms of the department and um, the fact that it it is difficult to fire um, federal employees. And this has really come to the fore with um, the wait time scandal that erupted last year at the Phoenix Hospital um, and a lot of the investigations that have been happening into mismanagement across the department. so there's been this tendency to focus on some of these uh, specific cases involving senior executives to sort of look at the larger issue of are there abuses of authority? Are there abuses of benefits going on? Are certain top managers not being disciplined the way they should be? Um, why is it so difficult to get rid of the so-called bad apples in the department? Um, that's something that many lawmakers have have asked about. That's something that you know, VA management secretary Bob McDonald has had to grapple with for much of his tenure, um, which is, you know, just been since last the summer of uh, 2014. Um, and as far as other movement, uh, there are two bills in Congress, one in the House. Um, the House passed the, the bill in July. The Senate is still it's still pending in the Senate that would make it easier to fire all uh, uh, VA employees. It's 
pretty much an expansion of what the Choice Act did, which applied um, to senior executives in terms of making it a little bit easier to fire them. These two pieces of legislation would apply that, the loosening of of firing restrictions to the entire workforce, which if, you know, that passes, Obama has indicated he would veto it, but it it would be a pretty significant change um, and it could potentially be replicated across government. And I think that's an an important point for our, our listeners to take note of. Um, many, many representatives uh, and, and even on both sides of the aisle uh, have indicated that some of the workforce proposals that are pending in the uh, regarding Veterans Affairs uh, employees might serve as a model for, right. for the rest of the workforce. And uh, at the moment, given the, the relative lack of engagement on, on civil service issues from the uh, House Oversight Committee and the Senate, uh, Committee on Homeland Security and Governmental Affairs, the two committees that have government-wide purview, right. um, they they appear to be kind of taking a step back and, and letting the, v, the VA committees pursue um, this initiative, testing some of these bills, um, seeing uh, if they can get some of them across the finish line into the president's desk, and then um, if they're able to put them into law, see if some of these new authorities uh, will help in, uh, help fulfill their vision of, of making it easier to terminate discipline, uh, demote, take the bonuses away, mm-hmm. uh, other provisions from from employees. So it's a, a very interesting uh, situation to watch and see, um, uh, not the least of which because the uh, the VA committee's expertise is not in Title V, which is the section of the code that, that generally governs the workforce. Um, their, their purview and their jurisdiction is largely in Titles mm-hmm. 38 and 42, which, which cover most of the medical professionals at, at the agency. And uh, in many cases, we're seeing laws amended, bringing Title V authorities underneath either of those uh, categories that are under the, the committee's jurisdiction so they can uh, adjust them as they see fit. Mm-hmm. Um, and, and then, as you mentioned, Kelly, the, the president had uh, threatened a veto um, earlier this year on the House Pass Bill, um, sponsored by the uh, Veterans Affairs Chairman in the House, uh, Jeff Miller from Florida, uh, that bill is H.R. 1994. Um, and so it's it's just been an, an interesting conversation and situation to watch watch at the Hill. Um, yeah, and I think that, you know, what you were saying about Title V versus Title 38 versus Title 42, I mean, it's clear that these are complicated issues. Um, and you're not just dealing with um, the management of a department. You're, you're dealing with a personnel system that is government-wide. And if you're going to start making changes to that personnel system, you really have to know what you're talking about. You have to to be cognizant of, um, you know, the repercussions of, of doing that. And I think, um, you know, a lot of people have good intentions here. I think the difficulty is that, you know, intellectually people say, well, if somebody isn't doing their job, if they're, you know, engaged in misconduct or just a poor performer, why shouldn't they be fired? You know, that's how it works in the private sector, um, you know, most of the time, not all the time, actually. Um, But I think it's difficult for people to understand that it is different in government. And there is a reason why the process is is lengthier and and perhaps more cumbersome in in certain um, situations because of, of, you know, fear of political retribution. You want to be able to protect a career civil service, allow them to do their jobs, and have due process in place so that they can't just be summarily removed because their politics don't match um, the boss's politics. So I think there is a difficulty understanding unless you are steeped in these issues um, and you know report on them or study them or or 
are an employee to begin with, it's it's difficult to understand why it is so hard to fire employees. And, you know, that it's it's kind of an easy issue for lawmakers to sort of um, hammer home when they're at hearings and trying to get their point across. Well, and I know another thing that VA had expressed concern on was not only the employees that are there now, but that the legislation might have a chilling effect for future executives mm-hmm. that they may be looking right. to hire. So. Or employees writ large. I know that that groups like the Senior Executives Association have been working with the American Federation of Government Employees who cover the collective bargaining unit that covers most of the, the VA workforce for, for rank-and-file employees. And, and both of those groups, uh, as well as other workforce groups like the Partnership for Public Service and stakeholders, have pointed out that some of the, the authorities that Congress is seeking to uh, establish at the VA may make it harder for, for that agency to attract and retain uh, quality of employees. And, and to date, it has seemed that that argument has, has largely fallen uh, on, on deaf ears up on, on Capitol Hill. Yeah, I mean, and I think that it, you know, bears saying that there are problems and, and things within the firing provisions um, in the federal government that probably need to be changed, that need to be um, updated, that, you know, should it take years and years and years to fire somebody who's an abusive manager? No. Um, there are tools out there that people can use right now. Um, you know, whether there's the will there, I think a lot of managers are afraid that they're going to get backlash if they try to get rid of somebody. Um, so, you know, I'm not sure what the solution is, if it's if it's legislative, if it's more education um, from OPM or another agency about what the tools are out there. But there does need to be um, some sort of pressure, I think, to at least either use the tools that you have to make the system better, or maybe there does need to be some wholesale changes. I'm, I'm not sure what the solution is, but it's clear that the, what, what's happening presently is not working. Well, and I think another interesting point is uh, in some of the earlier hearings, concerns came out ironically over uh, the, some of the Republican legislation, the Rubio bill specifically, that an unintended effect of it would be that a whistleblower could be fired for mm-hmm. retribution. So uh, that, that certainly goes back to the complexity of the issues and yep. things that you have to be aware of when you're crafting the legislation. Absolutely. Well, and you know, this this brings us to a kind of broader conversation of uh, kind of outlooks and, and prospects for for broader civil service reform outside of, of, of the VA or, or, or for the government. I know that yesterday there was a hearing in the Senate that looked at pay flexibilities, uh, examining uh, areas like the, the Bakken region up in uh, Montana and the Dakotas where the oil boom has, has driven up um, cost of living and, and salaries and the government is struggling to attract and retain quality employees up there. Um, are we seeing more movement on kind of those those piecemeal targeted issues, or do you see any prospect for for broader civil service reform uh, in this Congress? I mean, I think it's going to be piecemeal. I, I have a hard time seeing where it becomes an issue that t- that a lawmakers, a certain lawmaker, takes up. Um, sort of hearkening back to the days of George Voinovich and Fred Thompson and some of the Republicans um, who had a real interest in civil service reform and government management and those types of issues. I just, there isn't really anybody in either chamber that sort of um, would take up that mantle as far as I can tell. But I think where it it becomes um, something that can have some momentum is where you have certain legislators who have a particular interest in how it affects their constituents. You know, the hearing that you mentioned that was um, scheduled by Heidi Heitkamp, who's the Senator from North Dakota. She obviously saw the effects of, 
um, the higher cost of living and the fact that the federal government could not keep pace with that to recruit and retain people in that area because of um, the oil boom. And so for her, you know, she decided to, to, to dig into this and try to get the locality pay of that particular region updated um, to, to reflect the market. And so I think that's where you're going to see a lot of movement is when certain lawmakers say, OK, this is really affecting the bottom line for some of my constituents. It's a relatively small issue, even though it's a big issue. Locality pay is a big issue that affects all feds. But when you have sort of, um, you know, one lawmaker seeing the effect in their particular state or, or district, that's when you're going to see some of these issues bubble to the surface, whether it's through hearings, whether it's through regulatory change, whether it's through legislation. I thought one of the strongest points of that hearing was uh, when Linda Jackson of uh, uh, um, Customs and Border Protection mentioned that uh, rents in Williston, North Dakota, were bubbling up to the level of New York City. Um, I mean, that's really that's a mark incredible. when you right. have $2,200, $2,800 a month rents to really drive home the point of uh, pay flexibility. And I also know the some of the unions, uh, the National Treasury Employees Union, and Tony Reardon specifically had mentioned that this is also a sequestration problem, that if you bring up the pay grades back to their previous levels, mm -hmm. and you can also adjust these as well. But I, I think I agree that it is sort of a site-specific point that uh, you would see moving forward because areas like North Dakota with this explosive growth really just sort of need those areas of adjustment while the sequestration levels will require a lot of political capital and uh, a lot of movement that we may not mm -hmm. see. Mm -hmm. Well, and I think you both make an interesting point that, you know, at the end of the day, all politics is local. Mm -hmm. and, and for our listeners who may be outside the, the D.C. region, um, making sure that you contact your lawmakers and let them know that, that you may be a Fed or a, a contractor or someone else who's affected by what's going on in the government in, in your home district and that it affects uh, what's happening back at home. Um, will help encourage lawmakers to, to focus on these issues, to dedicate their time and their staff time to, to trying to get, get their heads wrapped around um, what might be done to, to help improve the situation on the ground so that, that agencies and their constituents and their uh, citizens who live in the area can, uh, can do the best job that they possibly can. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, well, I think we can uh, move on to our, our next break here, and then after the break, we'll we'll talk about some of the big deadlines coming up in Congress and how those may affect the, the workforce and uh, the government writ large. Uh, we'll continue after this uh, word from our sponsor. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. If you're a federal law enforcement officer, then you know to do your job, you tap inside sources. To have a voice on policy and legislation, you join FLIOA. And when you want federal law enforcement officer news and up-to-date federal court decisions, you read FedAgent.com. If you aren't reading FedAgent.com, subscribe today. It's free. Don't let this source pass you by. I'm John Adler, president of the Federal Law Enforcement Officers Association, and I approve this message. Back 
You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. I'm joined in the studio today by Kelly Lunny, Senior Correspondent at Government Executive, and Carton Cordell, Senior Staff Writer at Federal Times. Uh, we've been discussing some of the hot issues on Capitol Hill uh, this week uh, with the President's veto of the defense authorization and some legislation uh, coming out of the Veterans Affairs Committee that might have broader implications for for the workforce. But we're now going to turn our attention to uh, some of the bigger issues facing Congress um, and and what uh, what's going on with those and and what the path forward may be and and what potential implications may be for for Feds. Um, we know that we have uh, several deadlines uh, lying in wait uh, between now and the end of the year. Uh, at the end of this month, uh, the highway funding will, will cease on the, the 29th of October. Uh, the country will reach its uh, debt limit on November 3rd, uh, which has been frequently a contentious issue the, the past several years. And uh, we have the expiration of a continuing resolution come December 11. Um, and, and on the backdrop of all of these issues, uh, we had the, the shocking announcement a few weeks ago that the House Speaker, John Boehner, uh, would be stepping down from his position uh, at the end of this month. Um, and uh, in, in the meantime, there's been a, a, a leadership race that uh, took a long time to coalesce, although mm-hmm. it now appears that, that Paul Ryan is, is willing to, to step into uh, those shoes and, and take on the, the Speaker's gavel in the the House, but uh, uh, how does this all fit together? What, what are we looking at, and what are the what 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 might be the effects for the the government and the workforce here? Well, the first and most important deadline is is the debt ceiling. Um, November third is the day at which we sort of reach the the top, and all of the quote unquote extraordinary measures that the Treasury Department has put in place since I believe last March basically expires. So all that is to say that we start running out of money and we don't have any sort of wiggle room to sort of switch funds around to to give ourselves some breathing room. Um, if that happens, which it's never happened, we've never, the country has never defaulted, um, then the government needs to decide which bills it's going to pay. And obviously there are a lot of bills the government has to pay, um, and, and including Social Security benefits, veterans benefits, um, federal civilian salaries, military salaries. Um you know, if we start going down that road of trying to make um, the Sophie's choices of what we pay for, um, it's going to get really tricky. And there is certainly no, I think, desire in the administration, the Obama administration, or even on Capitol Hill to see that happen. Um, and I think that as far as the politics of, of it is concerned, you know, Speaker Boehner has said he well, he wanted to resign on October 30th. He's going to have to stay a little bit past that. Um, the vote for the next speaker, which is likely to be Paul Ryan, obviously, will be, I think, November 5th. So I think this will sort of be John Boehner's sort of swan song parting gift to <laughs> the next speaker um, trying to get this debt limit um, increase. And But, you know, once that happens, we're going to have a, a battle on this, you know, again at some point because it's it's been a never ending, as you pointed out, battle for the last few years. And another interesting thing that uh, I think happened this week, and a red flag from Treasury, if you will, is they canceled their two-note or two-year note um, sale that was supposed to go on October 28th, and then fold through through November 2nd on concerns that we would not have a debt ceiling resolution by that time. Um, they're still doing their five and seven-year notes because canceling those would be a really big sign of risk. So I think if uh, they can get the House leadership uh, resolution 
pass through and Paul Ryan does assume the speakership. Um, and then, as we said, with uh, John Boehner making this his swan song, that would probably at least settle the boat until the big fight for you know, the end of the continuing resolution come December. But uh, it's um, unpredictable at best. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. Well, and, and then, you know, as we saw a couple of years ago, um, um, just playing with the debt limit in and of itself um, is, is a very dangerous proposition, uh, resulting uh, in the first downgrade in U.S. history mm-hmm. of, our, of our credit rating. Um, and, and that had uh, significant economic implications uh, at that time. Um, and I know that, uh, uh, as you mentioned, there was a potential Sophie's Choice here. Uh, there was a, a bill that was moving through the House um, crafted by the Republican Study Committee, a, a large block of about 170 um, conservative House Republicans that uh, would have mandated that the, the country um, pay certain mm-hmm. certain debts Priorities. that it ha- has and, and not other debts. And uh, it appears that that bill uh, lacks the uh, enough support even within the caucus to move any uh, anywhere forward. So that it appears that the path towards a, a clean debt, debt limit is uh, uh in the offing, although uh, it's still up in the air about whether the House or the Senate may right. uh, lead that effort. Um, are there any um, you know, s- specific effects for, for federal employees for, for the debt limit outside of the, the economic I- implications? I know that, they, that the Treasury does tap the G Fund mm-hmm. and suspend mm-hmm. uh, investments there, but, but they always pay that back. Right. Um, they are required to pay that back right. with interest. Yeah. Um, but, but beyond that, is there any any concern or, or risk for federal employees themselves in, in this debt limit fight, or is it just uh, more the, the, the CR and, and the government funding issue that's that's a broader risk? You know, I mean, I th- it's a big deal, the, the debt crisis. It's a big deal for everybody. So the same way it's a big deal for me and you, it's a big deal for federal workers. I mean, you know, our salaries are not paid by um, the Treasury, but, you know, that's, that's where it gets tricky for them. But, you know, that's more of a sort of not immediate impact. I think the CR is more of an immediate concern for federal employees because it affects how they do their jobs, um, how they plan to do their jobs, budgeting, hiring, um, lots of those things. And if the government does shut down again, it obviously affects their uh, when they get paid and um, when they can go to work. So to me, that's probably more of an immediate concern. Um, you know, having said that, <laughs> defaulting is... Uh, not a really good option either. <laughs> uh, yeah, I agree. I think uh, the uh, the CR will be the big issue. Uh, I in the, it doesn't pay to speculate, but uh, I, I just can't imagine that we would bump the debt ceiling and then go straight into the CR in default. I, that would be a disaster scenario. I think that mm-hmm. they will reach a resolution on the on the debt ceiling itself and then move to the budget fight come December. And, and that budget fight will be a, a big one. I, I read in an article the other day that um, President Obama has been operating his government under a continuing resolution for near, nearly 60% of his time in office. Um, and, and that makes things uh, very difficult to do for agencies in terms mm-hmm. of planning, prioritizing, uh, making sure that you're, you know, winding down programs that perhaps you, you no longer need, reallocating resources to, to others. And uh, the interesting conversation and dynamic around this whole uh, continuing resolution issue is that, that that Congress fully understands that that this isn't the best way to operate. The appropriators are very frustrated that 
the hard work mm-hmm. that they put in each year in crafting bills that 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 tell agencies where they should and shouldn't spend money uh, get thrown out the door oftentimes when when we have these CRs. Uh, but yet again, here we are uh, again looking at a potential uh, CR or shutdown this fall uh, or this winter rather. Um, largely around the debate of sequestration mm-hmm. um, and and kind of what where are the dynamics on on that conversation around sequestration at the moment? Well, I think, you know, no one likes it, whether you're Republican or Democrat, you don't like sequestration. But the problem is, you know, the two sides have different, very different ideas of how to rectify the situation. And, um, you know, I think that in some ways the assumed ascension of Paul Ryan to the speakership could be good news for finding some sort of common ground on sequestration because he is known as a budget guy, um, a policy budget guy. He worked with Patty Murray a couple of years ago um, to put together a deal that repealed partially some of the sequester until um, it started up again fully in Oct- on October 1st. So, you know, in terms of that, you've got somebody at the helm who, who, um, has had a track record and a vested interest in trying to hammer out these differences with Democrats. Um, You know, having said that, federal employees should pay attention to the fact that whenever you start talking about relieving the sequester and finding other pay-fors to get around that, a lot of times the ideas come back around to, well, let's make federal employees pay more for their pension. Let's switch to the chained CPI, which affects retirees. So a lot of times some of the the pay-fors that particularly the Republicans come up with have a tendency to target pay and benefits of, of federal workers. I mean, it's no secret. They've definitely been doing a budget negotiation by Red Bull over the past few years. It's everything right at the last minute. It yeah. kind of reminds me of my college term <laughs> papers. But uh, I agree that I think that uh, Paul Ryan, if he can unify the disparate sections of the Republican Party, first off, to become speaker, then he really does have a, a decent chance of working across the aisle and coming to a budget re- resolution. Um, given the time frame that we're sort of working on, I wouldn't really be surprised if there was another CR to kick the can down the road to build more time for negotiation. But uh, he does stand a very good chance if he does become speaker to negotiate in a real deal and real budget policy for the first Mm -hmm. time in a while. Yeah, I think that's right. And you have to figure, you know, Paul Ryan doesn't want the first major happening on his watch to be a government shutdown. I mean, that looks pretty bad. So I think... I agree that they'll probably do another CR in December, but you know, I think that it's in his interest certainly, um, and everyone's interest to avoid to avoid that happening, particularly, you know, right a week or so <laughs> into the holiday season and that that's just a terrible narrative to have attached to your party. <laughs> Absolutely. Well, and, you know, I think one of the things that's interesting about this is, you know, the part of the justification for the CR on October 1st, pushing it into December was to provide more time to uh, negotiate a deal. But but as we've you know discussed, uh, maybe we need more time. And and then you know the question is, uh, what is the length of that CR? Does it get us past the right. presidential election and into uh, next winter when uh, everyone's already either going to stay in or stay out of Congress? We know who the president's going to be. Or do we um, kick something into early spring and and mm-hmm. uh, try and really do some some budgeting and appropriating? And I think that will be a 
an interesting question to see, and it'll also be equally interesting to see whether any of the the ideas that um, Paul Ryan has previously put forth when he was chairman of the Budget Committee, especially as they relate to pay-fors coming from the federal community, um, find their way Mm -hmm. into a a potential CR or, or broader budget deal. I know that Democrats have have said that they've they've kind of seen uh, enough of of that uh, with the 159 billion dollars that the workforce has contributed over these past five years, um, but at the end of the day, um, th- that potential still remains. Yeah, absolutely. And um, you know, a Republican Congressman Scott Rigel from uh, Virginia has introduced a bill um, which he's sort of touting as an alternative to sequestration, which includes a lot of these ideas um, as pay-fors to get to to get rid of the caps. Um, and among them is a proposal to require current federal employees to pay more for their pensions. Um, you know, there was a bill that was passed, I, I'm not sure the year it was recently, but re- require, I think, 4.4% contribution from new federal employees. Rigel's proposal would apply that that to all employees. So no one would be grandfathered in, essentially. You know, that's one thing that's on the table. Is that going to happen? Probably not. But it gives you the indication that these these ideas are still alive. They're still being included in in larger legislative vehicles, and they're not going to go anywhere. Absolutely. No, I think that's uh, an an interesting point to make. Um, You know, it's uh, it, it just doesn't seem to, to stop as it relates to the workforce. And, uh, you know, recent a recent report that came out from the uh, Cato Institute indicating that uh, the work for, federal workforce has uh, um, greater pay and benefits as it relates to the, the broader private sector continues to fuel these kinds of proposals right. um, when, when, when it's construed or made out through, through the data that they selected to, to look at uh, that, that, you know, the workforce is really more more generously compensated and and their benefits are more generous it it continues to add to that that conversation there and and i think that that's a uh, uh, a difficult point to push back against when mm-hmm. you have uh you know a respected organization like that putting out studies like that that continue to beat that drum on the, right. on, on that side of uh, uh of the ideological spectrum there yeah um great well before we uh dive into our last section of the conversation, looking forward to uh, what some of the presidential candidates are, are saying about their workforce and uh, uh, the, uh, the government. Uh, we're going to have uh, our last break and a uh, word from our sponsor. You're listening to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. Make long-term care insurance part of your retirement plan. Long-term care is expensive, and it's not covered by traditional types of insurance plans. With benefits designed specifically for the federal family, the Federal Long-Term Care Insurance Program offers a smart way to help protect savings and assets and remain independent should you need long-term care services someday. Start planning for the future. Take the next step and visit ltcfeds.com today. That's ltcfeds.com. Welcome back to Fed Talk on Federal News Radio, 1500 AM. We're entering our last segment of the show. Today I've been joined by Kelly Lunning, a senior correspondent at Government Executive, and Carton Cordell, a senior staff writer at Federal Times. Uh, we've covered uh, the field today, talking about uh, hot issues up on the Hill with uh, the defense authorization being vetoed, the uh, VA legislation, and, and how it might affect the workforce, uh, some of the big deadlines 
coming down the pike uh, in terms of the debt limit and uh, potential uh, shutdown if, if Congress can't uh, get past the continuing resolution at uh, midpoint in December. Um, but I think in this last segment of the show, we're going to look forward to uh, some of the candidates running to be president of the country on, on both sides of the aisle and uh, what uh, some of them are saying about the workforce, agencies, pay and benefits. Uh, you know, America is unique in that we have these apparently never-ending uh, campaign cycles, and uh, but uh, it gives us an opportunity to really see where, where folks stand on the issues. Um, and uh, I know that uh, Kelly, uh, the, the government business council that's uh, affiliated with your uh, um, news, news organization uh, recently put out a, a survey of the federal workforce kind of looking at uh, the preferred candidates mm-hmm. uh, among the workforce. Do you have uh, some of the results from that survey? Yeah, we uh, did a survey uh, and it showed that uh, actually more federal employees are Republican than maybe people typically believe. Um, and among the Republican um, respondents to our survey, which um, I think was maybe a thousand or so, uh, they said put Donald Trump and Ben Carson sort of at the top of their candidate list, at least at this point in time when the survey was done, which was pretty recently within the last month. Um, so it's it's interesting. It seems to be sort of reflecting a lot of what we're seeing at the from the country at large in terms of the, the polls that are looking at um, which candidates are sort of generating momentum um, among people who they like to see. Um, you know, I, it, it will be interesting to see how or if those results change after the next Republican debate and as we get closer to the actual election. I think, you know, as you mentioned, the endless sort of campaigning and presidential cycle, um, the further out you are, the sort of more you take it seriously, I think, <laughs> because it is sort of a nonstop. You're hit every day with um, this person said that this person thinks this. And, you know, you think, oh, it's, a, you know, it's a year away. I don't have to really think seriously about this. But what that person said sort of resonated, I think, as we get closer to the actual um, primary season. Um, and there's, you know, really a lot at stake. People may may change how they how they view who, who should uh, be at the top of that list. Yeah, I, I I started to reminisce uh, about my childhood back in the other long ago days when uh, Tom Harkin announced for to run for presidency in 1992, but his announcement came out in maybe December of 91. Of uh, my foggy senior moments seem to recollect, but I, I agree. I don't remember presidential elections starting this early in advance. And uh, one of the things I thought was very interesting about the Trump numbers that, that was 33 percent of the those polled in that. Uh, found him favorable. Uh, that does not a president make, but that's still a significant amount for someone who has never held political office right. and has been very controversial. So I think we're sort of, especially this year, in kind of a bizarro world for perceived popularity right now. And I'll be very interested to see when we actually have to kick the ball off in January where people end up in the primaries. And, you know, it's worth noting, too, Donald Trump has not said a lot about specifically about the federal workforce. You know, I think it's fair to say that he's in favor of shrinking government, having less regulations and probably fewer uh, federal employees. uh, But he has not come out with any specific proposals that would target their pay and benefits, for instance, the way that Jeb Bush has or Carly Fiorina or um, Marco Rubio in particular. You know, he is the sponsor of that VA bill that we talked about earlier that would make it easier to fire 
um, all VA employees. And he has made remarks on the Senate floor and elsewhere that he would like to see that um, replicated throughout the government. So, you know, that could be playing into some of these these um, poll numbers as well, because, you know, Trump has not said a, a lot necessarily, nor has Carson about what they would do in particular to the federal workforce the way that some of the other candidates have at this point. And, and it is interesting uh, mentioning the VA. Um, it does seem that, that many candidates, uh, especially on the Republican side of the aisle, have are, are, are focusing on that agency. I, I believe Dr. Mm-hmm. Carson has mm-hmm. endorsed uh, privatizing the entire VA. I don't know if Trump so has. So has Rubio. Uh, yeah. Rubio has as well. I'm not sure if Trump has gone uh, quite that far, although he has advocated for uh, making sure that we're doing all we can to to take care of our veterans, um, right. a goal which I'm sure we all agree with. Um, um, so it's 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 been an interesting dynamic to see that um, that kind of popular talking point uh, spill over right. into, into into the campaign trail. And as you mentioned, for some candidates with more specificity, and for other candidates, uh, not so much. Uh, and it'll be interesting as the campaign goes on whether we see more meat around the bones of those uh, mm-hmm. policy provisions. Um, Another agency that's been frequently mentioned out on the trail is the uh, Internal Revenue Service. Uh, I don't believe that there is a uh, a Republican candidate who does not think that we should abolish the IRS. Uh, And there's uh, a few other agencies, uh, education, transportation, uh, among some others that Mm -hmm. that have also been cited as uh, potentially unnecessary at the federal level that certain candidates would advocate uh, for eliminating. Right. And, you know, you see this in every at least in the most recent presidential campaigns, the um, candidates mostly on the Republican side saying, you know, we should get rid of this agency. We should consolidate these agencies. Obviously, there was the famous Rick Perry oops moment where he forgot the three agencies that he wanted. He had said previously he wanted to eliminate. Um, You know, I think it's a great talking point, especially when you are speaking to an audience outside of Washington who is, Sick of quote unquote bureaucracy and the the endless agencies and regulations, but you know it is a very difficult and significant thing to abolish an entire department. Um, you're not just talking about regulations and programs and policies. You're talking about people who are out of jobs, um, and when you start talking about that, it becomes a lot less popular. <laughs> and I think it's very interesting. It goes back to this lengthening of the campaign when you were out in the field campaigning for a year and a half, two years, you, I mean, you've got to stay in the media. You've got to keep talking. So what kind of things are you really going to say that keeps you, you know, aware and in front of the public that you're trying to court? So I, I think you'll keep seeing uh, discussion points like this, but as we've said for this past hour, you know, it takes a lot of political capital to do these kind of things. And right. as we said, you know, eliminating a whole departments would take a wealth of political capital, Trump level capital. Oh so. yeah, absolutely. <laughs> I mean, it's it's easier to create one. Look, Homeland Security, <laughs> as opposed to getting rid of one. I mean, there's there's turf wars. There's you know, just the logistics of dismantling a a department and who takes over their jobs and where do the people go who don't have jobs anymore. So it's it's a very complicated proposition that unfortunately few candidates can actually explain how they're going to do it and um, deliver on that. So it's it really just remains a talking point until people put some more meat behind it. Yeah. Well, you you make an interesting point in in that, you know, these do uh, require both a huge amount of political capital, as, as Mr. Trump would say, but, uh, but also, uh, you know, Congress has a big role to play in this. And, mm-hmm. and if you're a member of a committee that has jurisdiction over any of these agencies, 
uh, how do those members feel about uh, one of those agencies potentially being taken away from them? Right. You don't uh, hear a lot of lawmakers saying they want certain agencies eliminated. <laughs> uh, except perhaps for a few of the, uh, well, Rand the, Paul, the, the senators who are, are running. Yeah, <laughs> right, Rand Paul right. in particular has, I think, perhaps listed the, the largest number of agencies yes, that, that almost he's all of them. to see, uh, <laughs> um, go away. Um, but let's make sure that we also cover the uh, the other mm. side of the uh, the equation here uh, on the uh, the Democratic side of the docket, um, which uh, has shrunken significantly this week with uh, former Senators Jim Webb and uh, Lincoln Chafee dropping out of the race. Um, and we're now left with uh, former Secretary of State Clinton, mm-hmm. Senator Bernie Sanders, and uh, former Maryland Governor Martin O'Malley. Um, where are they on the work, the workforce or, or, or government issues? Has has this been a uh, a big focus of any of their campaigns, or or not not so much? It really hasn't been to this point. Um, you know, I think Se- Secretary Clinton probably has sort of the the most um, to look at in terms of how she views the government um, and the civil service. She's always spoken very highly of State Department employees while she was there. Um, also, she and Senator Sanders have said that they support expanding paid paid leave to parents um, as a federal mandate, which would obviously include federal employees. And that's something that Obama has supported um, since he's been in office. And one would assume that if Clinton or Sanders were elected, that they would push for that as well. Um, but they haven't really come out and said too many specifics. Sanders has mentioned the VA um, has sort of touted his his um, part in getting the Choice Act um, passed in 2014 when he was head of the um, or at the VA committee in the Senate. But other than other than some of just sort of vague generalities, there hasn't been a lot of specific proposals from the Democratic side that I can see. I think it'll be really interesting uh, a little bit closer into election season when uh, when we see what happens with the CR and budget negotiations. It, it's certainly interesting when you have sitting senators running for office mm-hmm. uh, to see how they might leverage whatever negotiation you see uh, into proposals that they put down the line or what they achieved when they go on the campaign trail. So I think uh, you know starting January, you'll start to see certainly more of that once we know who mm-hmm. the speaker is, once we know what the, the budget negotiations in December will be. I think, uh, as with everything else in primary season, things get a lot clearer. Absolutely. And, and, you know, one thing that is interesting is, uh, you know, whether or not, especially when sitting members of Congress are running for a higher office, um, the extent to which they they show up at their their day job. Um, You know, uh, Senator Graham, um, who who is also running but is on the the lower tier of the the Republican side of the equation, has been missing uh, a lot more votes than many of his other colleagues uh, in Senators Cruz, uh, Paul, and Rubio, who have seemed uh, to place a greater priority on making sure that they're in the Senate for for big votes. I know that that was an issue that was uh, brought up in the 2008 election when Mm -hmm. we had uh, Senators Obama and McCain um, duking it out for, for for the title, so it's it's interesting to see how that uh, piece uh, uh, potentially will will come into the race as we continue going forward. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think that um, they're all going to criticize each other um, for being there, not being there, how they voted. Um, that's just part of how how it all works. Um, but you know, I agree with what Carton said. The closer we get, the the level of specificity you know, increases. Um, so I think, you know, for federal workers and retirees, they're really going to have to pay attention as we get into 2016, into the summer, um, because that's when a lot of these proposals will 
will make themselves known. And, you know, that's when, depending on what happens with the CR, we're going to see maybe some of these other ideas, these pay-for ideas, increasing pension contributions or, um, you know, only replacing uh, three jobs with one person. Those types of things could really get um, could get legs. Great. Well, you know, to, to help, uh, you know, our listeners or, or the readers of either of your uh, news publications, uh, have, have your, your organizations put together any resources where you're collating things that the candidates have, have said about these issues? Where, where can folks go on online um, to, to find out more about what some of the candidates and, and other folks are saying as it relates to the workforce? We've done several stories that spell out um, what the various candidates have said on issues that affect the federal workforce. Um, they're standalone stories, but we've also kind of put together a page, um, you know, sort of a special report, uh, which we will be expanding that people can go to and sort of click on um, various candidates to see what they've said on things. We're, we're kind of you know, in the midst of trying to put that together. Um, but we certainly will have something that's that's easily searchable um, as the campaign really gets gets going next year. And uh, we're continuing to follow the issues. Uh, as the candidates bring up more economic proposals, we're examining uh, how those might affect federal employees and uh, what the uh, hypotheticals are of how they might play out. Wonderful. Well, I'd like to thank you both, uh, Kelly Lani from Government Executive and Karin Cordell from uh, Federal Times for, for joining me today for this reporter roundtable. I think we covered a, a ton of ground and, and really let folks know about both some of the, the specific issues that, that are percolating as well as some of these big picture issues that, that might affect our uh, listener base here. Um, that's all the time we have for our show today. Uh, thanks again to our guests for joining us. Uh, Fed Talk is brought to you by the Federal Employment Law Firm of Shaw, Bransford, and Roth. I uh, hope everyone has a great weekend. <laughs>